We all, deep down, long to be understood, don't we? It's, I think it's a, a, a real human longing that we desire to be understood, that somebody gets me. <laughs> we long for it. And it's disturbing and frustrating when it doesn't happen, isn't it? When somebody, that others don't get us. Perhaps we come home from work and we've explained the difficult day that we've had and we just get a, mm-hmm, and that's sort of a bit frustrating, really, or maybe just not more than a bit. When the big things happen in life, of course, even more so, whether they be the struggles or the great joys, the battles or the triumphs, we long that others get us, that we long to be understood, for others to share with us in what it means. But it doesn't always happen, does it? Even those nearest and dearest to us don't always get us perfectly, do they? And sometimes we can even feel that, perhaps more, in our relationship with God, can't we? Does God really understand what I'm going through? Does God really get me? Does he know what it's like? For many people in the world, God is distant, far away. There's a God, he exists, but he's just a long, long way away. He's watching from a distance. In Argentina, lots of people think that way. So most Argentines believe in God. But God is a long way away, and therefore you need other people to sort of make that jump up to God for you. So you need to, there's lots of different saints, official saints, Catholic saints, non-official saints, all sorts of people who make the jump for you, who somehow get you better than God does and help and and do do the job of trying to twist God's arm for you. They try and get God to understand us, or they try and twist God's arm for us. But the God of the Bible is not like that. He's not far away and distant. Right from the beginning, right, we think back to the Garden of Eden, God's desire was to be there with Adam and Eve. He walked with them in the cool of the evening, it says. And his desire has always been to be present with his people, to be there. That's why they built a tabernacle in the Old Testament. That's why they built a temple, because God wanted to dwell amongst his people. He gave them instructions on how they could approach him, how they could do things, so that he could walk with them. And we see it most clearly in the person of Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. But as we approach Easter, we see it even more clearly. As we approach Easter, and as these passages that you guys have been seeing, as we've been reading, as we lead up to Easter, we really get to see that God actually fully understands us. God has come and put his tent right amongst us. And what he, he's done, what, done all, that, all that is needed to be done to make it possible to live in his presence. It's one of the things we're going to see in this passage for today. From uh, Matthew chapter 26. Jesus understands us. He gets us. He understands the human experience. Have a look if you've got your Bibles there. Open them up to Matthew chapter 26. Verse 31, as we continue the series. Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, if you're on your your phone or on your your Bible or on the outline. They're there on the outline as well, the whole passage is there. And we read this introductory part after the Last Supper, which we saw last week, and after that Jesus had talked about breaking his body and his blood for them. They then leave the upper room and then they go to the Mount of Olives and we read this. Jesus told them in verse 31, this very night 
you will all fall away on account of me. For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. Peter replied, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. Truly I tell you, Jesus answered, this very night before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. And all the other disciples said the same. Jesus Jesus knows what's about to happen to him. Just as we saw last week, he knew that he was going to be betrayed, even by whom he was going to be betrayed. Here he sees that he knows that his disciples, when the going gets tough, (laughs) the tough disappear. He knows that they're going to desert him. And he knows that Peter will deny him. There's nothing beyond his control. The disciples are out of it. No, 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 no way, no way. They won't do that. Peter's insistent. He's even willing to die with Jesus. But Jesus knows what's going to happen. Jesus is in complete control of the situation. And yet he goes ahead anyway, doesn't he? Knowing what's about to happen, knowing that what awaits him, knowing that his disciples are going to let him down, knowing that all of this is going to happen, he goes ahead because he knows it's part of God's plan. For it is written, that phrase that you've seen again and again in Matthew's Gospel, the phrase, all a part of God's plan. It is written, it is done to fulfil the Scriptures. And as we look at the rest of these passages, we see that, that, that Matthew presents it for us in two scenes. Two scenes which basically fulfil the predictions of Jesus in this opening part. We're going to hear the first one now. Julie's going to read for us. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to them, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him. And he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here. Keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and he prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me. Yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for one hour? He asked Peter, watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and he prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. When he came back, he again found them sleeping, because their eyes were heavy. So he left them, and went away once more, and prayed the third time, saying the same thing. Then he returned to the disciples, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Look, the hour has come, and the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us go. He come by the trail. While he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. With him was a large crowd, armed with swords and clubs, sent from the chief priests and the elders of the law of the people. Now the betrayer had arranged a signal with them. The one they kiss is the man arrest him. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, 
greeting is Rabbi. Do what you've come to do, friend. Then the men stepped forward, seized Jesus, and arrested him. With that, one of Jesus' companions reached for his sword, drew it out, and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call on my father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the scriptures be fulfilled that say it must happen in this way? In that hour, Jesus said to the crowd, Am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I sat in the temple courts teaching, and you did not arrest me. But this has all taken place, that the writings of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all his disciples it's an emotional scene isn't it this garden scene of jesus he takes his disciples with him as he prepares for his death full of anguish jesus knows what lies ahead of him jesus knows that he will die as it is written this phrase we keep seeing again and again and so he retreats to the garden to prepare himself, to pray, to commit himself into his father's hands. See it there in verses 37 and 38, the anguish. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled or distressed. Then he said to them, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. In his moment of anguish and distress, he, he looks for the support of his close friends. And yet, they let him down. They're sleeping. They can't keep their eyes open. In his moment of torment, of moment of anguish, they fall asleep. They had all the best intentions, didn't they? Oh, we won't desert you. We'll even die with you. And yet, when it came to the moment, they can't even stay awake let alone die. As Jesus says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the question is raised, why is Jesus so anguished about his death? Why so much sorrow? Lots of people in history have gone to their deaths bravely, resolutely. The story goes about Socrates, the philosopher, that he drank the hemlock, but with great courage. The bishop, Polycarp, one of the first, second century martyrs, went to, the, went to his death defying the Romans. And the reformers, some of the reformers who were killed under Bloody Mary in the 16th century, went to their deaths bravely. What's going on with Jesus? Why is he tormented, anguished, troubled? Why can't he go there, you know, strongly, I'm going to my death? Why is he so cut up about it? In verse 39, we see the key. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it's possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. You see, when Jesus talks about his cup, he's giving us a clue that this is no ordinary death. Jesus talks about the cup, not just referring to death in general, not just saying he's going to die, but he's going to take the cup. Which cup? He's going to take the cup of God's wrath. The idea in the Old Testament is that God has a cup of his anger, his judgment, which he's going to pour out on the nations. 
And Jesus said, he's going to take that cup. Well, hang on. If this cup is for the enemies of God, for the nation, why is Jesus taking this cup? What's going on here? Why is it talking about God's judgment and anger and wrath? All those words we don't like to hear. And many people in these days have a problem with that. They think, no, God is love. We don't want to talk about God being a judge or God being angry or wrathful. But we need to think carefully about this. You see, sometimes people think that the opposite of love is anger. But it's not. The opposite of love is indifference. You see, if I love you, I'll care about what you do to yourself and what you do to others and what you do in your life. I'll care about it. And in fact, I'll even get angry about it when I see you hurting yourself or hurting other people. If I don't love you, what do I do? Do what you like. I don't really care. I don't give, what's that? Two figs. That's actually the opposite of love, isn't it? Not that you get angry, but that you're completely indifferent. God's judgment, God's anger at human rebellion is not a sign that he doesn't love. It's actually a sign that he does love. He does care because it matters to him. It matters to him what people do with their lives, what people do to each other, what people do to his creation. That matters to God and therefore he gets angry and therefore he judges it. And that's why Jesus is distressed. Because God's plans for him to take that cup of anger and wrath upon himself. He is going to drink the cup. The cup that was meant for God's enemies. Jesus is going to take. The death of Jesus at one level is like any other death. He's going to die. At another level, it's unlike any other death. You see, Jesus is taking upon himself the anger of God, the judgment of God, the judgment of God that we deserve for our rebellion against him. That's why he's so anguished. That's why he's so distressed. And yet he goes ahead with it. He commits himself to God's plan. You notice the wording there? My father, if it's not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. And earlier in 39, he said, yet not as I will, but as you will. He commits himself to God's plan. He asks his father, is there no other way? And yet at the same time he says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And his resolve contrasts with that of the disciples, doesn't it? They can't even stay awake. But Jesus resolves to take the cup of the wrath of God. The scene finishes with the arrival of his betrayer and after a short attempt to resist his arrest with a sword fight, you know, someone draws the sword uh, uh, but, and they think they're going to fight these guys, Jesus clarifies this intention. No, 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 stop, basta. It's a Spanish word but it works really well there. <laughs> basta, enough. That's not what I'm on about. If I need a defending, guys, I have a whole heavenly host that could come to my defence. No, no, I'm committed to going ahead with my Father's plan. Twice more in those verses we hear that the scripture had to be fulfilled. This is no accident, this is God's will, this is his plan. And Jesus is absolutely committed to doing his Father's will. Unlike somebody else in a garden a long time ago. Right back at the beginning, 
Adam and Eve, not willing to do God's will. In this garden, this man is willing to do God's will, even though it costs him his life, even though he's going to drink the cup of God's anger. And then this scene finishes with this little phrase in verse 56. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. Jesus is alone. Jesus understands what it means to be betrayed by someone close to him. Jesus understands what it means to be abandoned by his friends in his moment of need. And we can identify with that, can't we? Perhaps you haven't had exactly the same experience, but I'm sure amongst a group here, some of you have been betrayed by a friend or a spouse, somebody who'd made a commitment that then never pulled through. And I'm sure all of us can understand and relate to the fact that being abandoned or feeling alone at the moment, at the crucial moment, Jesus gets it. He's been there. He's done that. Jesus is betrayed by the one who'd, been, who'd shared bread with him. Jesus is abandoned by the group that he trained and shared with for three years. And yet, not only that, there's more to come. Those who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had sent him. But Peter followed him at a distance, right off to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so that they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, this fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus said. But I say to all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the mighty one and coming in the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spat in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophesy to us, Messiah, who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard, and a servant girl came to him. Also look at Jesus again, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. <coughs> then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath, I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went, went up to Peter and said, Surely you're one of them, your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses, and he swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately, 
the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock grows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept. So in this next scene, which is a two trials, really, isn't it? Trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter. And again, we see this contrast between Jesus and his disciples. What do you notice about the trial of Jesus? Well, it's with the bigwigs, the religious leaders, and Jesus is giving testimony. All of the gathered leaders, all intent on finding a reason to have him killed. Jesus doesn't come out defending himself, looking for a way out. He keeps silent until the right time to declare who he is exactly. Verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied, but I say to all of you, from now on you'll see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Jesus is asked if he's the Messiah, the Son of God, that is the anointed one of God who comes to establish God's kingdom. And Jesus confirms that, but then he ups the ante. See, not only is he the Messiah, the Christ... He's the Son of Man. It's a figure from the Old Testament, from the book of Daniel, a vision of Daniel, a son of, one like a Son of Man who comes in the clouds to the Ancient of Days, to God, and receives a kingdom, an eternal kingdom. So basically, what's happening here is that Jesus is asked if he's the King of Israel, like David. And he says, yes, but more than that, I'm actually the eternal King, the King of all peoples and all tribes and all nations, the eternal King forever. And you can imagine that it was a little bit problematic saying that he was the Messiah. It's a lot more problematic <laughs> saying that you are the eternal king sitting at the right hand of the Father, and that's why they charge him with blasphemy. They call out, enough is enough. And what do you notice about the trial of Peter? Who asks him the questions? It's not Caiaphas. It's not the bigwigs. It's a servant girl and then another servant girl, and then someone else who was just standing there. The nobodies of the society, the people who just happened to be there. And what does Peter do? Confirm his identity? Declare who he is? No. He hides. He's not willing to identify with the Lord Jesus. So on the one hand, in front of all the people with power, Jesus declares his identity, even though it means his condemnation. And Peter, in front of the lowly people, without power, is not willing to identify with Jesus in order to avoid condemnation. Here he is, Peter, the one who has said he was willing to die with Jesus. He's not even able to say that he knows Jesus. But at least Peter was there. Where are the others? He's the best of the bunch. <laughs> the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And this scene finishes in verse 75. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. As we approach Easter, what a great reminder that Jesus understands us completely. Here is our Saviour who understands what it means to be abandoned, 
to have a friend who denies him, to be betrayed, to have the powers that be to be completely against him. Jesus understands the human situation. He understands our experience. Now, they might not be exactly the same, but Jesus has been there. He's experienced that. All of these things that we experience, Jesus understands. He knows it from the inside out. In his most terrible moment, Jesus is left all alone. He understands that he gets us. He knows what it's like. And he went through all of that by choice. He chose to carry out his Father's will. He chose to fulfill the Scriptures. He chose to drink the cup of God's judgment. And he did it for these friends who couldn't even stay awake. He did it for these friends who deserted him in the key moment. He did it for Peter, his best mate, who couldn't even name him, identify with him. Jesus went to the cross alone. But it's much more than that. It's not only that Jesus understands us. Not only that Jesus understands the human situation. Jesus did something about the human situation. So it's not just an example of how to go to your death or showing us an example of someone who really understands all of these human emotions. No, Jesus did something about it. He died the death that we all deserve to die, but that death had a purpose. It achieved something. Jump back with me to verses 31 to 35. Because I did something naughty. (laughs) I left out something. You see, Jesus made a couple of predictions. What did he predict? He predicted that they're all going to desert him. And he predicted, and he'd, he'd already predicted, that someone was going to betray him. That's in the other, in, earlier in chapter 26. He predicts that all of them are going to desert him. And then he predicts that, uh, that Peter's going to deny him. But he also predicted one more thing there, didn't he? Anyone want to suggest what it is? Verse 32. After I've risen, I'll go ahead of you into Galilee. That's a prediction too. And if all of the other predictions came true, that one as well is going to come true. And we know that it does. You see, the death of Jesus achieves something. By taking the cup of God's judgment, he actually defeats death, smashes death, has the last word on death. He conquers it. And he can say to them, he'll see them again. He will go ahead of them. He'll be with them. He will once more walk among them. Because death is going to be defeated. And that, friends, is the great hope of the gospel. Good Friday ends in Easter Sunday. That is the message of the gospel. For those who trust in Jesus, death is not the final word. Death has been swallowed up. For those who trust in Jesus, they can hear Jesus' words. But after I've risen, I'll go ahead of you prepare the way for you. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for what you teach us in your word. Thank you that Jesus gets us. He understands us. He's been there. He has experienced the whole range of things that we experience. And yet he faithfully chose to do your will. But more than that, not only does he get us, he did something about our problem that he chose to do your will to deal with our rebellion, to deal with the judgment that we deserve, to deal with death. Thank you that he willingly went to the cross doing your will. And thank you that you raised him to life again as the one who has conquered death. 
Father God, help us to trust in Jesus. Not only does he understand us, but he's given us life by taking that cup for us, by dying our death for us. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.